Welcome to How We Work, a podcast about the very real and very human dynamics that shape the way we work. I'm your host, Mike Lovett, and I am recording from Work Human Live in Atlanta. My guest this week is an author and the founder of Happier. Her new book, The Awesome Human Project, is available now. Please welcome Natalie Kogan. to be here. Yes. Welcome to the Thunderdome, I suppose. (laughs) We are, as listeners probably know by now, in the midst of a very energetic scene. People are watching us, which is always a pleasant experience as you're recording (laughs) something. It's always funny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're in a glass box. We are, which is both a safe space and a little vulnerable, but that's okay. Natalie, we're so happy to have you here. We've had a number of episodes this year talking about stress and finding ways to deal with stress. And I want to start here with a blurb on your site that really tickled me. Let's start with the bad news. Your brain doesn't care about your well-being or happiness. Its main job is to keep you safe from danger. That's right. So this idea of imagined stress or imagined danger, worry, self-criticism, can you talk a little bit about why our brain is so good at making things really tough for ourselves? Yeah, I would love to. So the first thing I want to say is, especially given what we've all just gone through with the pandemic, life is full of stressful stuff. So it's not like we're imagining it. Life is full of challenges. Very real Um, stuff. Very real challenging things. But there's a difference between challenge and struggle. Mm -hmm. So challenge is constant, always happening. Struggle is our internal experience of it. And what our brain is really good at is increasing our struggle. So to talk about what we just said, the brain doesn't really care about anything other than our survival, which is actually wonderful. I don't think it's entirely bad. No, 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 absolutely not. I like being alive. It's a cool feature. Yeah. So because it's so focused on our survival, it's always looking out for possible danger, physical danger, right? But also psychological danger. Do you know to the human brain, psychological danger and physical danger are exactly the same. You can't see. So wolves running at you or a dangerous virus out there or having to have a difficult conversation with a colleague, same perceived danger to your brain. Both are a lot of uncertainty. It starts to freak out. So we all have what's called this negativity bias. We're just really sensitive to anything that is wrong or did go wrong or could go wrong. It's helpful for survival, right? It helps to keep us alive. It's not helpful for thriving or happiness or well-being because essentially our brain is constantly adding additional stress. So one of the other things I want to add is the human brain also really hates uncertainty. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, right? If things are uncertain, it doesn't know how to keep you safe from danger. So any kind of uncertainty is very stressful for the brain. What does it do? First, it releases cortisol, which is a stress hormone. So if we all think about the last couple of years, all about uncertainty, so much stress. The second thing your brain does is it starts to make up stories about the worst case scenario that could happen. Mm. The brain feels that it can make up a story about the worst case scenario, it gives itself a sense of safety, almost a certainty. The downside of that is we all know what that feels like, sitting around ruminating on, this is not gonna work out, I'm gonna suck at this, this person's gonna be mad at me. That's just creating additional stress, overwhelm, anxiety. Most of the time those things don't happen. And so the thing we have to recognize is our brain is trying to do its job of keeping us safe from danger and it's doing it really well. 
But because of that, it's creating a lot of additional stress and anxiety and overwhelm. And we got to then be the editor of our thoughts, which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah, that's kind of my... Well, first, I want to say, I think we would probably do well as a society if we started framing the virus as like a pack of imaginary wolves that was attacking us. Maybe we would handle things better in some cases. But yeah, I do want to talk about that because that staring at the bedroom ceiling, imagining worst case scenarios at work is very real. And so... Yeah, what can you do to train yourself to recognize, whoa, 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 wait, brain, I see what you're doing there. How do you build those? And it's probably not going to be perfect. It takes a lot of practice and you might not get it 100%, but where do you start? But it is possible. So you start with awareness. What you just said, we first have to become aware that this is what our brain is doing. And as I share in my work, I burnt out several years ago and we burn out for many reasons, but one of them was... I just fully went ahead with every thought my brain gave me. I just went there. So we have to develop this awareness of, okay, my brain has given me a lot of thoughts about how this is not going to work out or how I'm not good at this or how this colleague is angry. Okay. First we have to become awareness. Oh, and these thoughts, they're stressing me out. So that's our first step. Without that awareness, nothing we can do. Once you become aware, what I want to encourage every single human in the world to do is to recognize that just because your brain gives you a thought does not mean you have to go along with it. Mm. There's a great quote. I think I've never found the direct source, but I think it comes from Zen Buddhism. And it says, your brain is a terrible master, but a great servant. Your brain is a terrible master, but a great servant. So it's a terrible master. And if we think about it, just if you just pause for five minutes and listen, watch your thoughts, you get it. You're sitting here listening to me right now, and I bet half of you are thinking about your to-do list, and half of you are also checking your email, and half of your brain's like, oh my God, didn't call my mom, didn't call my friend. Whoa, like all over the place. So if we just follow wherever our brain goes, not very helpful. But our brain is incredibly malleable. It can be a really great servant. And the way we get it to do it, so what I invite you to think about is you are the editor of your thoughts. So when your brain gives you a thought, literally what I want you to do is, especially if it's a thought that's causing you to stress or feel overwhelmed, You say, thank you, brain. This is fantastic input. And now I'm going to edit it. And here are two questions I want you to ask. And I do have to say, Mike, like, I don't want to overpromise, but this is life-changing. This fundamentally changed my relationship with myself, my thoughts, my stress level. Two questions to ask yourself when you have this thought that's very stressful or causing you a lot of angst. Is this thought true? For something to be true, you need to have facts to support it. And I want you to be like the lawyer in court. So... What you think the other person thinks is not fact. You don't know that, right? Imagination. So the first step is to say, okay, so this story my brain is telling me about how this is not going to work out, I'm horrible at this, is is this true? And what are the facts I have to support it? It's a very humbling experience because most of the time the facts are very hard to come by. you got to be honest with yourself. The second question to ask, and I find this almost even more helpful, is this thought helpful? So if I go along with this thought, if I continue to give up my focus and energy, does it fuel my energy? Does it make me better as a leader, as an employee, as a parent? Does it motivate me? The answer is never yes. This I can guarantee you if it's that thought. So those are the two questions to ask. So just like a good editor editing a draft, Mm -hmm. right? Well, okay. So are these things true? What are the facts to support these assertions? And are these helpful, like to the narrative that you want to portray? And it is such a powerful practice to practice being the editor of our thoughts and to ask ourselves, is this thought true? And is this thought helpful? Because what it does is sometimes there are facts that are true and that may be stressful, but 
instead of it being this overwhelming cloud, now you've picked out, okay, so this is the one specific thing I'm actually worried about. Let me focus on that. But it's a really, really powerful, again, it's a mindset shift that you are in charge of your brain. You are the editor, not the other way around. So for you, when did that start to click? Yeah, just to be really honest with everyone, because that's my jam, this wasn't some elegant process by which one day I woke up and I was like, oh, I am the editor of my thoughts. Let me reduce. No, there was none of that. I burnt out. I spent my life believing my brain. I spent my life in struggle. I talked about the difference between challenge and struggle. I didn't know that difference for most of my life. I thought life is supposed to be hard. If you're doing work you care about, you got to struggle. And I burnt out several years ago. It was a really, really scary time. I stopped being able to function as a leader, as a CEO of a company called Happier. I couldn't function as a mom. And it was very, very scary, but it was also, I guess, a blessing in a way, because for the first time in my life, I paused. I just couldn't push myself anymore. And I did something for the first time that I'd never done before, is I began to really look within and to think about this horrible relationship that I had with myself of endless self-criticism, of just neglect. That was my relationship with myself. And this horrible relationship I had with my thoughts, where I just went ahead, wherever my brain set me, I was just like, yes, this is bad, and this is bad, you know, and I'm a refugee, so that's like part of it. And so it was through this very clumsy process of trying to figure out, okay, is there a different way to live and work? Is there a different way to have a more supportive relationship with myself, my thoughts, and my emotions. And I did a lot of research in, in neuroscience and psychology and a lot of trial and error, but I discovered these skills and practices. I call them emotional fitness skills, and it took me years. But that one, I mean, it probably took me several years after burnout, but when that clicked for me, it was a huge moment. But yeah, there was no elegance around it. And what were the things you started to notice about yourself? Because I imagine anything compared to the depths of burnout is a significant change. But were there times along the way where you may have surprised yourself or you found these very clear, noticeable signs of positive change? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. And I actually, as you started talking, I actually remember one specific one. I want to tell the story. It's, I'm going to try to do it in a short way. So about two years after I like fully burnt out, put my life on hold, laid off my team, like was completely like to zero. I started to sort of put my head up and, okay, I, I want to continue to build this company, but I want to change it. I want to speak. And, and I started working with this agent on a new book and it was very exciting and he was incredible. And it was just like, I felt like Phoenix rising from the ashes and it was incredible. It was like the first meaningful effort after a couple of years. And then one day he disappeared. He completely disappeared. It's a long story. I don't know all the details. I think he had some kind of a mental breakdown, but here was this person that I put so much trust in as I'm like coming out of this horribly dark time and everything crashes. I worked mm. on it for, and everything is gone. And the reason I'm telling you this is this was the first moment I realized the skills that I had because before burnout, that would have brought me right down into the greatest valley of suffering. And I would have just, I would have been like, this is a sign I should just go into a deep hole. Nothing ever works out for me. I'm not worth anything good. I would spend time blaming him and I myself and then the people who introduced me. I'd figure out how to blame my husband and my daughter, you know, because when we have that in us, we spread it around. And I didn't do any of that. Hmm. Now, I was shocked and I was really sad and upset and devastated, but I was okay. I remember actually sitting there when I realized it was kind of over 
And I remember sitting there and I remember my primary emotion was just sadness for him. Because hmm. I realized obviously something was very wrong. And I just had this moment of, oh. And not that it wasn't challenging. I had to start from scratch and find a new agent and all that stuff. But I, instead of just going along with all those unhelpful thoughts that would just increase my struggle, I dealt with the challenge. And that's the power. And it was incredible. I still remember it. I write about it, I think, in my first book, Happier Now. Challenge is always there. It was a really, obviously, challenging situation. He also had my book draft, the whole thing. But instead of wasting my energy on the struggle, on the stories of struggle, I'd use that same energy to figure out, okay, this is what happened. I feel really sad about it. And of course, I feel disappointed. What can I do to move forward? And so I did, and I found a new agent, et cetera. And I share this because it was this huge moment of victory. Because instead of descending into that valley of struggle where I spent most of my life, I dealt with the challenge. And it took editing my thoughts, and it took that awareness, and it also took compassion, both for myself and the other person. But that's a huge thing. Yeah. And on a daily basis, we have this choice. And it is, that is the thing. We have this choice, but it's not a choice that's easy to make. Because especially my pattern was always to blame myself, others, life, the world. Everything is always horrible. Everything is always, you know, I'm a Soviet Jew. Everything is always horrible, you know. And it's not easy to break out of our patterns. But the thing I want everyone to hear is you do have the choice. And you just start one step at a time. Just one step at a time. But they do add up to the point where you can handle these crises in a totally different way. You were CEO before the burnout yeah. and you're CEO now. <laughs> and typically people don't return to that, but you yeah. did. Yeah. And so I'm curious, what are the things you notice or maybe others notice about you that are different in your leadership style or how yeah. you manage a company? Because you're doing well. And most people <laughs> who burn out, like they go off and they're a farmer somewhere yeah. and just disconnect completely. But you chose to get back into it. Yes. So I'm curious about that process and what those signs of change were there? Yeah, great question, Mike. You're asking. I'm really grateful oh, for such goodness. thoughtful <laughs> questions. No, it's, it helps me share in the most meaningful way. You know, I tell people that I work harder now than I ever did. I'm still the CEO of Happier. I actually completely changed my business. So before I burnt out, Happier was a tech company because that was my background. I mm -hmm. was in tech for 20 years. And it was a gratitude sharing app called Happier. It was a mobile app and it was great. And after I burnt out, I realized, wait, hold on. These emotional fitness skills that I just taught myself, I just created this method that I want to teach to every human in the world. We called it the happier method. And I said, that's what I want happier to be. And so the company became about me speaking and our happier work programs and me teaching. So not only did I keep the company, but I made it harder for myself. It's much harder to build a personal driven brand and mm -hmm. to teach people. And I love that you asked me this question because... I actually didn't make any drastic changes in my life. I still run the same company. I probably do more now. I'm still married to the same guy. I have my daughter. We have the same house. I didn't go off to Nepal to like meditate for five years. What changed was my relationship with myself. What changed was my emotional fitness and these skills and how it translates into how I lead and impact others. I think it's pretty transformed. I always cared about people I lead. And my definition of a leader is not about managing people or your org chart. You're a leader if you positively impact other people's capacity to thrive. And I always loved being a leader. I cared about people I impacted. But the thing is, we share our emotions with others. 
So I brought that overwhelm and exhaustion and snappiness and lack of compassion that I had for myself. I brought that to everybody else. I expected perfection of myself. I expected perfection of everybody else. The way we treat others is rooted in how we treat ourselves. So because my relationship with myself has been transformed, it has positively impacted every relationship I have professionally. I'm much more patient. I'm not saying I'm perfectly patient, but I'm much more patient. I'm much more comfortable with people's different emotions because I'm comfortable with my own different emotions. I truly can sit here in front of you today and say that I think my capacity to positively impact other people's capacity to thrive has been transformed in the most positive way, including people I speak with through my talks and the programs, because I have created this supportive relationship with myself. And when we do that, we're able to bring our full capacity to others. And so it's been completely transformative. And that that idea of you being in control, I think is something a lot of people, myself included, sometimes we don't always jump to that. But in a prior episode, we were talking about hope and how can you be hopeful when you look around the world and there are so many gigantic things that you cannot alone mm. do anything. But can you take a step back and find agency? Can you donate? Can you send supplies somewhere? There are things that you can do and you find those little current and that's how you pull yourself out. So it's great to hear that thread continue. It because, continues. Yeah. And I love that you use the word hope because I think a lot about with my talks and the work that I do, I always think about like, what is it really that I'm giving people? Yes, I teach skills and practices and I have great energy and I energize. Yes, but ultimately what is at the core? And I think it's hope. And it's not hope that one day something amazing will happen. It is hope that you can struggle less and not by magic, but because you have control. You have, there are always things you can do. And the way that I think about what you just said is none of us can cure all the ills in the world, none. But we all have a sphere of impact. And so what I like to do is to ask, what is my sphere of impact? And in my sphere of impact, how can I create something that's positive and meaningful? And we all have that. And that to me is hope. Hope is the ignition of life. You know, if we didn't have hope, we, why go on, Goodbye, right? Yeah. So I think every day, if we can reframe hope and think about my hope for today, what can I do in my sphere of impact? What is something meaningful or good or kind or positive that I can experience and create in my sphere of impact? I think that's possible for every single human. Yeah. And that I hope listeners are finding uh, <laughs> some hope in that to know that, again, like you said, you cannot cure all the ills. But as far as as we're talking about work, and I'm sure there are people stressing about different things that are happening at work. We talked about the real or imagined stress to know that there is the capacity to pull yourself out and find progress, I hope is hopeful. I want to talk your your latest book, The Austin Human Project. Talk to me about where that came about, because you had a very clear established, the happier method, happier now, like there's a clear thread, but how do you break off into a whole new book? What yeah. spawned that? Yeah, not just a whole new book, it's a whole new movement, right. uh, which we've launched with it. The shortest way I can describe it is I realized that I need to start at the struggle. And I realized that when I wrote Happier Now, I wrote it a couple of years after I burnt out, I didn't yet have full awareness just because of my own experience and just time 
of everything that I needed to share and everything that I went through. And so the Awesome Human Project, you know, the subtitle is how to break free from daily burnout, struggle less and thrive more. And I wrote the book because I wanted to meet people at the struggle because I realized that with Happier Now and the Awesome Human Project still has the five core skills of the Happier Method, but it's presented and I write about completely different things because I meet people at the struggle. And I don't think I could have imagined that I'd be writing the book during the pandemic or that it would come out during a time where I think all of us have struggled enough and we need to shift. But gratefully, the book is there for folks. But that was my main motivation. You know, I got so many notes from people in the few years after Happier Now came out saying, you know, I bought your book when I came out or I saw you speak, but I've been afraid to open it. Like, I can't even think about happiness given where I am. Mm. And that was the seed that started me thinking, I got to meet people where they are. And when you are struggling, you can't think about happiness. So the Awesome Human Project meets people in the struggle and helps people shift out of it. And it's also, frankly, an expanded, happier method. I've had a lot. I've transformed a lot. It has the same core foundations. But since Happier Now came out, I've worked with hundreds of thousands of people and spoken to so many different people and companies. And I'm constantly learning and improving. So it also is an expanded, more nuanced. But the main motivation was to meet people in the struggle and to help walk them out. That's fantastic. Well, I hope people check that out. I want to thank you so much for joining me. If people want to learn more, obviously your books, but where can they go to get these daily doses of inspiration? Yeah. NatalieKogan.com is my website. All the stuff is there, including awesome human hoodies, which I'm wearing, okay. which have yeah, my art on them, which vibrant. people love. <laughs> it's a good way. You know, our brain needs daily physical reminders to practice. So it's a good one. And then probably my two main media, social media channels are LinkedIn and Instagram. So Natalie. You get a very there. robust YouTube presence I as do. well. Oh, yes, I should start. I should. My YouTube team always tells me like, YouTube is awesome. You should do, you should tell people more. Yes, I love doing short videos where I share these small practices and skills. It brings me joy. So there's tons of short videos like that on my YouTube. And for a process that just requires repeated practice, it's a yes. good thing to, yes. to bring you in. Well, thank you, Natalie, for joining me. Thank you all for listening. As Natalie said, go to nataliekogan.com to learn more. Check out our YouTube channel. Shout out to our YouTube team <laughs> for, for building it. But thank you all for listening to How We Work. Please rate, review, subscribe to the show. Follow us at Work Human. Subscribe to our newsletter in the show notes. This episode was hosted by me, produced by me, and edited and mixed by Rob Valois. We will see you with a new episode in a few weeks. Bye-bye.